The rare disease community is inspirational, brave, and empowering. Welcome to Insightful Moments, My Vibe, from PTC Therapeutics. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to PTC's Insightful Moments, My Vibe, where we're elevating the voices of people within the rare disease community to inspire, inform, and comfort. My name is Emily Heinz, and I'm the Global Clinical Patient Engagement Liaison at PTC Therapeutics. Recently, we attended the Global Genes Rare Advocacy Summit in San Diego, where Paula Orendash spoke to many people who are connected to the rare disease community, whether as parents, caregivers, or as patients themselves. Today, we'll share some of the stories we heard, focusing on three guests who have experienced long journeys with undiagnosed conditions. We'll give these guests a platform to speak about living with a rare disease themselves or in their household, the ups and downs that go with undiagnosed conditions, how they stay positive, and so much more. We'll begin with Danielle, who lives with an undiagnosed form of myopathy. She tells us how her condition was originally misdiagnosed as mitochondrial disease, her advocacy work, how she's found independence by using a motorized scooter, and why she feels conflicted about it. Welcome to PTC Therapeutics Insightful Moment, My Vibe. We're so grateful that you came to join us today. Yeah, thank you for having me. So I'd love for you to introduce yourself and please tell us about you. Okay, so my name's Danielle. I'm 29. I'm from the Boston suburbs, and I've been in the rare disease community my whole life since before I even remember. So for many years, they thought I may have had mitochondrial disease, but then after some genetic testing, there was more questions than answers. And so now I'm kind of in an undiagnosed myopathy category, and that's the very simple version of the story. So tell everyone when you're falling under this myopathy, mitochondrial, like, What are your symptoms? When did that start? When did you become aware? Yeah, sure. So I have a brother that's two years older than me. So my mom like was aware of the milestones and, you know, I was not reaching them. And so she describes me as like when I was probably like six months old noticing I was floppy. So then I did a muscle biopsy at eight months old. So from what she tells me, like, you know, so I was born in 94. It was kind of testing whether I possibly had like SMA or if not, and they couldn't figure out anything else, I'd go into like a black box is what they'd call it. So I did go in the black box of the unknown. And then my immune system was pretty bad all those years. I did start walking at the age of two, but still like I walk with a Trendelenburg gait, I believe it's called. So like a limp and then couldn't run, couldn't jump, fatigue very easily. And then when I was younger, my immune system was pretty bad. So she got another opinion. So that's where I got the probable mitochondrial disease diagnosis. And then I ran into a lot of GI issues, which have progressed and got more complicated over the years. I can go into more detail later. Everyone's favorite topic, GI issues, you know. I've been one of the lucky ones, though, because my muscle progression has been very subtle, like to the point like I don't even notice. Like I'll look back and say like, oh, I could do that when I was younger. Like when I was younger, I could get off the floor, but now I can't. So I'm very cautious in crosswalks, you know, but maybe it's because I'm tall, maybe taller, you know, than I was, or maybe it's a subtle weakness. I do think I've had subtle weakness, but again, one of the lucky ones where 
it's so subtle that it hasn't affected me too much mentally. You know, it's a lot easier to deal with when you're stable because when you're progressing, things around you are changing. So yeah, so that kind of sums up some of the symptoms that started raising some red flags. So you were sent into this, and I find it um, interesting, the black box. So that's the world of undiagnosed. Tell us what it's like being in that undiagnosed community. Sure. So like my earliest memories are just that I had a muscle disease and then I just remember thinking probably mitochondrial disease. So I identified a lot with the mitochondrial disease community because I had that probable diagnosis for so many years. But it was different, though, because mitochondrial disease is such a diverse patient population. Everyone's different. And then for many years, when I was getting more involved, there was almost a sense of guilt because there's so many like very severe cases that I'm like, do I really belong in this community? So I took a step back a little and then I was also focusing heavily on school and all that. But then when I got older, the lack of progression actually was what got my doctor to start saying, like, maybe let's look into this again, you know, and then also technology kind of caught up to me a little bit, but it's still not caught up with me yet. But then the test, more testing was available. And then there was an orphan disease lab that was willing to look into my genes and all that. But so that few years ago is when I got the more undiagnosed category of myopathy. And to be honest, it was almost like a relief, which is the opposite of what people say, because a lot of people in the undiagnosed community, it's either their child or themselves, and it kind of comes out of nowhere and it disrupts their regular life. But for so many years, I thought I probably have mitochondrial disease. And that was something I Googled. So, you know, seeing things on Google can be very traumatizing. I remember seeing like a magnet on someone's fridge at like a pool party when I was younger. Like they probably donated like a family friend and it was saying like fatality statistics. And I'm like trying to be a regular kid at a pool party. And then it's like seeing something like that kind of made it real for me. But I, I it was kind of like I lived in the in-between. Like I had to live my own life and then have this diagnosis. But then when I became more undiagnosed, I felt like, okay, the story's a little bit more unwritten. And what they said is because my progression has been so slow, that's hopeful that whatever it is will continue to be that way. You know, there's no guarantees, but because, you know, there's nothing to Google when you're undiagnosed. So that's something like a saying that I tell a lot of people this because I feel it's helpful for anyone kind of dealing with things is kind of surrender to the unknown. And I feel like that's like a really good way to go through life. It's really hard because we want to control things and we want to know what's going to happen. But when you surrender to the unknown, you kind of leave yourself open to the good things too. So that's something I try to remind myself as well. You can somewhat semi-embrace the undiagnosed diagnosis, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. But I definitely do like so I volunteer for the Undiagnosed Disease Network Foundation, and I had thought that I had done all the testing that I could have done, but then they were like, oh, no, there's a few more things you could do. So I'm going to enroll with them because knowledge is power. So it's better to know. Like if maybe there's something I should be avoiding, it's good to know information, but it's been good that I've had time to process it in like stepwise ways. So the additional testing, and I, you said something that was interesting, like science caught up to you a little bit. Maybe not enough, but it's still catching up, right? And it changes so much. So, and now there's more tests. So is the testing that you're moving forward through, is that more genetic testing? Yeah. So like when I was growing up, it was the muscle biopsy was the way, and it was kind of like a live or frozen sample. I don't know, like too much 
about the logistics with that. Like, you know, when the residents and fellows come in the room and they're like, oh, can you just give a brief history? You know, I've been, I'm good at like the elevator pitch now. You know, so I told them my whole life story, you know, we'd be here all day. So, but a lot of the uh, physicians will say like, you know, she's a good crash course on the history of genetics. Cause like some of the doctors said like, oh yeah, when I was going through school, like when you were born, we had like one chapter of genetics or one page, you know what I mean? But now it's, a whole new field where everyone going through medical school should really be educated on rare disease. But it's unfortunate because I still don't think they're getting the training they need, which is a disservice to them as well as the patients. So it's tough. Then does that kind of make you feel like you have a bigger role in educating the clinicians? Yeah. And it's tricky because I feel like very capable of doing that. So I do have concern for the people that are newly diagnosed overwhelmed or just don't have, you know, some information like clicks better than others. Like I, I remember everything about like celebrity gossip. It just sticks in my mind. But like some people, the medical stuff may just like overwhelm them. Like, and I, I can digest that information, but cause a lot of the times, well, I can go into it later, but I do like content creation stuff where I reenact some moments of life. And I discuss a lot about the rare disease and disability experience. And then one of my clips is telling the difference between a doctor that's uncomfortable meeting like a rare disease patient and one that's comfortable. And then like the green flags when someone's comfortable is they just say like, you know, thank you for sharing. Like they're not like, oh God, this whole can of worms just got open on me. And then they, you know, say, well, keep it in mind. And, you know, they're not afraid to do that extra research, but you can kind of tell when someone's like, oh, like, you know, it's, I'm stressing them out. You know, they're not trying to because I'm most of them, but like I can tell when they're just like really stressed, you know, about the prospect of someone being undiagnosed, having all these other complex issues. And then sometimes they place it back on you. So it's very complicated and there's still a lot to be worked on. But the problem is it's easier to find problems than solutions. So a lot of communities have to work together, I think, to improve the experience for rare disease patients and then the healthcare practitioners that they meet. You just described an additional complexity to a rare disease when not knowing what it is. Obviously, if you have a diagnosis, then you can go a little bit more textbook, right? Where you just outlined a whole big area that undiagnosed families face and trying to get their healthcare and to do that cross-collaboration. So you're really the one doing the cross-collaboration. Yeah, yeah, I'd say so. And it's good because I definitely have very responsive physicians, but I know that's a privilege that like not everyone experiences. So it's much as I can say, you know, and a lot of people in the rare disease community will talk about medical gaslighting and people not believing them. And that hasn't been my experience just because it works out for me where they kind of understand the process and they have the resources. And, you know, some clinics in rural areas may not have the resources to do all that. They might not have fellows that can answer their questions for them. So it's tricky for sure. But undiagnosed patients are definitely thrown into a role that they might not have anticipated. And the typical patient does not have to be involved in. Tell me a little bit about what you do outside of all your advocacy. What are some of the things that you do on your days? I work a day job. I work in business. I do like business marketing, that type of thing. So I originally was on the more medical path. I did originally go to pharmacy school, but I finished with my pharmaceutical degree, but I transitioned out of that because it wasn't really healthy for me. So I kind of got out of that 
field for a while, did business, like getting my MBA was my pandemic project uh, and an Etsy shop. But that, yeah, I feel like everyone got into crafts a little bit. But then so after that, I got more into business. But then I did feel like I kind of had a void because I do want to make a difference in this field. But, you know, in a way that feels fulfilling for me as well, because I really enjoy creativity and innovation and all that. And then I love editing videos. So I'm like, you know, let me just think of something I can do. And then so last year was my first like adult vacation and I'm a Disney person. So I went to Disney with my friend and her daughter. And that was my first time like renting a scooter. Any other time I went on like a trip or whatever, I got pushed in like a manual wheelchair. I'm ambulatory, but you know, for longer days, that's what I would use. And then I was like, we kind of joke, like when I got my own scooter, like the power went to my head because I was like so much more independent because I was turning around saying like, oh, am I going too fast? Because I'm like so used to like trailing behind everyone. So I'm like being 50 feet ahead of people, you know, like leaving them in the dust. So I'm like, oh, I need to get myself one of these. So when I got home, I did. And then I'm like, it gave me like a sense of confidence, like in my independence. I feel like the communities, like the research communities and disabilities community, like you know, getting independence any way possible is the key. So whether that's like a treatment or more accessibility places, all that, whatever can gain people like their independence and their dignity is really what the goal is. So that's why I started a content creation journey. Uh, so it's called Danielle Elevates, combining the word Danielle and Elevates because the content is all about elevating ideas about disability and rare disease. So at first I'm like, oh, is it, should I just do disability? Should I just do rare disease? Because sometimes it's not always connected, like I was just mentioning, but I'm like, they're both important because they're both really getting at the same thing, which is what I was just mentioning. So that's like my hobby on the side. So I do Instagram and TikTok, a lot of various content, some educational, most humorous and satirical. There's a lot of silly stuff, but it's about like addressing like stereotypes and stigmas about disability. And then on YouTube, I started like a vlog series where I document my adventures in the Boston area and beyond. And, you know, like I said, I went to Disney, did the Disney cruise. So I give accessibility reviews and all of that. And then I'm vlogging this event for Global Jeans as well. So that's a hobby that I started about four months ago. And I'm really glad I did because I work remote. So my days were like, because working remote can be hard. Like it's worked out really well for me with my rare disease. So that's when I started doing the online content. So, so that kind of prompts me to do a lot of like adventures because I'm like, oh, I need content. So we got to find something to do interesting, you know? So yeah, that kind of sums up a little bit of what I've been up to recently. And that's a lot. Yeah, <laughs> that is yeah. a lot. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I try to keep busy. It's good for me. It yeah. sounds like you are. Yeah. I'd love to go back to the decision to get a scooter. And I think sometimes people resist, but it's independence, right? And so help someone who may be facing that decision. Yeah. Well, there's all different reasons why people resist. Like for me, a new term that I've heard recently that I'm like a lot of dynamic disability. So it's like, a cross between invisible and visible. Like, so if you just see my headshot, you won't know I'm disabled. And then, you know, sometimes people think it's a compliment and they say, oh, you don't look disabled. And I'm like, well, I'm not walking up the stairs right now. But if I start to, I will look disabled. So it's really not a compliment, you know, and what does disabled even look like? But so like I am ambulatory and I, I don't use the scooter most of the time. So it was one of those things that I'm like, oh, if I'm using the scooter, like, no one take a picture of me because I don't want to be like disrespectful for people who use mobility aids all the time. Like I didn't want people to think like she's just using it as a prop. You know what I mean? So that was my hesitation with it. And that kind of falls 
a long, a lifelong journey that I'm finally making a lot of progress on is like, what community do I belong in? You know what I mean? I don't want to intrude on the disability community or the rare disease community, but like that, I think projected from like society's judgments, because really the more the merrier, because there needs to be strength in the communities. And you're not going to do that if you're saying like, this one can't join, that one can't join, you know, and then too much separation. And no one's really saying that in the communities. It's just people on the outside. So that was my hesitation. But then when I got over it and I'm just like, well, this improves my quality of life. So I do need it, you know, and I don't have to use it all the time. But if I use it, I use it. If I don't, I don't, you know, that's just my personal experience. You advocated so well on that point. So thank you. Tell me the power of a person with a rare disease, the power they have of telling their story. Yeah, absolutely. I think the story for rare disease patients is very important to them, you know, because it's so specific to their journey. And it's important to share for like many reasons, because like Global Genes has the Rare Compassion Program, which I participated in, where medical students are paired with a person with a rare disease to share their experience. And it's great because it tells the social aspects, financial relationships, but outside from the medical stuff, because all of that does affect your health as well. You know, you don't really have any health if you don't have mental health, you know, because that's really the core. And a lot of talks are addressing that at this event, which I think is really important. It's good to share, but I think it's good to remind people sometimes like your story is going to continue. Like a lot of people say like, this happened, this happened, this happened. And it's like, well, you're still here and you can add good stuff to it too. So like kind of accepting, you know, it does affect everything, but our paths lead us to where we're supposed to. And you kind of just have to figure out why am I here in this moment now and make the most of it. That's just how I view it. You made a wonderful point that your story doesn't stop today. You're going to still add to your story. So what do you see for your ongoing story? Yeah, no, that's an interesting question. And years ago, I might have gone on for a while. But like now I'm just like, like I said, my original career path didn't work out. So like now I just I don't really make like five-year plans any of that type of stuff. Like I just take it day by day and just be open to new opportunities. So it's just like being open to like different things you experience. Cause then if you have tunnel vision, like I had before, you're not as open and then you kind of conform to what you think you should do. So yeah, like I want to be, you know, the happiest person possible. So it's just figuring out what that is in the moment and then taking it from there. How can people find your blog and all that? Sure. Yeah. So I'm on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. So it's Danielle Vate. So it's the name Danielle, D-A-N-I-E-L-L-E. And then Vate, uh, V-A-T-E-S. It's like the slogan is like elevating ideas about disability. So, you know, it's not famous yet, but maybe one day people will be like, oh yeah, Danielle Vate will just flow. But yeah, right now it's just having to spell it out. And it's I still have the underscore before that on Instagram. So not official yet, but hey, maybe this podcast will be what, you know, blows it up. So Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well then let's encourage everyone to yeah, subscribe. Yeah, subscribe, <laughs> follow, do whatever you gotta do on all the platforms, YouTube, TikTok, Instagram, all that. Yeah. I hope that works. <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much for having me on. It's such a joy to hear your story. And I cannot wait to hear what the next part of your story sounds like. Okay, great. Thank you so much. I really appreciated talking to you. Thank you. Next, we spoke with Carrie, a mother of a 16-year-old son, Evan, who has multiple undiagnosed diseases affecting his central nervous system and autoimmune system. 
She tells us how Evan has made almost a full recovery after multiple strokes and is even back to playing baseball. I would love to welcome you to PTC's Insightful Moments My Vibe, and thank you so much for coming. Thank you so much for inviting me. Please introduce yourself and tell us about your family. Absolutely. My name is Carrie Borello. I have a son with an undiagnosed demyelinating disease of the central nervous system, in addition to an undiagnosed autoimmune disease and an undiagnosed immunodeficiency disease. We have been on this journey for six years. Symptoms began when he was just before 10. It was four days before his 10th birthday, and he's 16 now. I additionally have two other children, one son older than my 16-year-old and a daughter who's eight, which both my oldest son and my youngest daughter have bilateral sensorial neural hearing loss. So all three of my children have some medical complexities, we'll say. And so let's start with those days before his birthday and what was happening. We were playing baseball. We were playing baseball. There were no signs, symptoms, nothing that led us to believe anything was about to happen and our whole world was going to change. Previous to that, the absolute only thing was that he had asthma and he had missed a good chunk of kindergarten due to pneumonia. But beyond that, he was a very typical healthy boy. And we live in Middle Tennessee, that is one of the highest allergen populations ever. So having allergies and asthma just seemed to be a Everybody does. So that wasn't ever taken into consideration. But the day symptoms happened, my son was actually on the baseball field pitching. We were in Alabama. Yes, he was on a travel ball team. And I saw him signal over to his coach, and I knew something was off. And then right as he was supposed to be pitching, he called time, and he collapsed on the baseball field. And so I went running out there naturally, immediately took him to the emergency room, and they told us it was heat stroke, which made sense. It was hot. It was April in Alabama. It was over a 100-degree day. But I really was reluctant to accept that because they didn't ever do blood work. They didn't do any labs on him. They didn't do anything. They just looked at circumstances. And I was like, well, you didn't actually check his sodium in his blood. He's not dehydrated. I questioned it. was brushed off. And three days later, it was his birthday party with his friends, and it was a Saturday. And we woke up, and I noticed he wasn't speaking correctly, and things were really different. So I decided I was going to take him to the emergency room at home. But for whatever reason, and I'm so thankful I changed my mind, as I was passing the exit to our pediatrician's office, I chose to get off at that exit instead and went rushing in for their Saturday office hours. And that was the only physician that actually got to see my son symptomatic. If I had gone to the ER, he would have not been symptomatic. So he then sent us to the hospital where my son underwent MRIs to find out that he suffered not one but two strokes. So that heat stroke a few days prior was actually a stroke. The uniqueness of my son's situation, however, is that his strokes occurred in his thalamus, which is a typical lobe of the brain for strokes to happen. And in addition to that, he is the only person medically recorded in the world where a stroke has, it was a bilateral stroke, meaning that the stroke actually crossed his corpus callosum and was in both of his left and right hemispheres. So we went to the pediatric ICU unit and we stayed there for quite a long time. And he had a team of doctors, every possible doctor 
was involved in his case and trying to figure things out. His strokes are not caused by a blood condition or by any other typical means of a stroke. We were in the PICU for a while, sent down to neurology floor, and then sent home with not any answers. We were going to get discharged, and I was like, um, he's just suffered two strokes. He hasn't had any evaluations done prior to discharge. Could we please have evaluations? And thankfully, they did. And my son qualified for all physical therapy, speech therapy, and occupational therapy. So we were intensely doing that five days a week. And we were home for two weeks when his third stroke happened. And each stroke has affected a different lobe. So that stroke occurred in his parietal lobe as well as his frontal lobe, which that affected his ability to remember, his ability to walk. We were back in the ICU unit doing our MRIs and testings. We had a spinal tap at that point, still leading us to no answers and no reasons and no causes to anything. We came home, and two days later, I had started noticing symptoms again, called immediately. They told me it was residual symptoms of his previous stroke, and three hours later, my son collapsed. So we went back to the ER, and that stroke that he had actually paralyzed his left side. So by the time my husband brought him that time, we had a baby at home also at that time. By the time my husband had got to the ER, my son was completely incapable of walking on his own. So again, another ICU stay, back to neurology for more testing than I could ever count on all my digits, right? But still inconclusive and no answers. What I will say is a really positive is this story seems so gloom and doom as I say it out loud, is that... My son has been able to make almost a full recovery. So it has been exceptional. We traveled and found a specialist in New York. I begged and pleaded with her. She doesn't see pediatric patients, but I was a desperate mom, and she started treating my son with infusions. He has had monthly infusions since, and he has a Metaport implanted, and we get his infusions every four weeks, and he's remained stable. And as the years, we have endured a lot. Along with his undiagnosed disease, two days ago, he had a three-pound atypical lipoma removed from his armpit. He was kind of on a routine to have a surgery every six months. His appendix ruptured. Things just kept happening. So I am so grateful to the doctor who decided that maybe this treatment would help him because it has. And now he's 16. He's back on the baseball field doing what he loves. And it's amazing just to know five short years ago, he's had to learn to rewalk and retalk. And it took two years to fully have equality of strength on both of his sides. But he has persevered. I do need to give credit to my son, especially in this platform. I know he hears it from me, but he is resilient. And he was a 10-year-old boy in a hospital bed. And every single day thanked his dad and I for being there. And he has walked his journey with a smile. Sorry, goodness. Don't apologize. Don't apologize. I'm sorry. No, do not. Um, with a smile on his face, he has inspired so many other people because he has endured more than most humans will in a lifetime. I'm giving you a real quick snippet that doesn't include all of his medical testing and the amount of needles and surgeries and MRI. I mean, there's the laundry list is too long to cover. It would take weeks to talk about all that he's endured and the pain that he's had, but he does it. And he doesn't ask a lot of questions. 
either. There have been times, you know, why is this happening to me? We always talk to him about it's okay to feel that. You should feel that. But we're not going to live in this feeling. We're going to feel this feeling. We're going to talk about that feeling. And then we're going to move on. And we're going to just press forward in the best way we know how. And he's always done that. And he inspires me. He, you know, I continue to advocate and I continue to push forward because of his resilience and because of his ability to be just exceptional. He's truly an amazing human being, and I'm just blessed to be his mom. He sounds so proud, but I imagine that his resilience and all that must have come from you because it sounds like you had to have also had an awful lot of resilience in trying to manage those symptoms and without answers. So I hope you give yourself credit for that. Today, though, you still don't have an answer. We do not. So along this six-year journey, we've sought out different professionals. We've had multiple genetic testing done, and he has had his entire genome and exome testing done, and it still comes back inconclusive. There's nothing that gives us any definitive answers. My husband, myself, and our other two children have also had genetic testing just to see if there's any possibility within our family history. Our family history has been reviewed going all the way back to his great-grandparents, but there are still no answers. He does remain undiagnosed. But I guess I should have mentioned also, forgive me, that with his stability and time and his continuous infusions, his symptoms, I don't want to say have subsided because that's inaccurate, but they have lessened, which has been, there's so much gratitude for that. So daily he feels, his symptoms are almost parallel to MS, so he has heaviness in his legs, extreme fatigue. Uh, we used to have a ton of other symptoms that have seemed to have resolved. As he's aged, he's actually been able to grow. We were really concerned about that. He was with an endocrinologist for quite a while. He wasn't showing any signs of growth. He noticed that he was much smaller compared to his peers. And he took it upon himself to decide, what do I need to do? What should I do? And he keeps track of the amount of protein he intakes. He keeps track. He's been working out for over a year on a daily basis, just trying to sustain. And he also noticed, I will say this, interestingly enough, as he started working out, like lifting weights and doing cardio, his symptoms have subsided the most. And that has seemed to have been the most beneficial thing. I will say previous to the last year, he wasn't strong enough physically his symptoms were too intense or too frequent for him to be able to have that workout regimen in place. But once he started feeling well enough for an extended period of time to have an opportunity to start aggressively working on his body, that has been the biggest change, which also includes his short-term memory. So the biggest deficit we still see from his strokes is his short-term memory. So he has really compassionate friends who are, you know, we told you this 14 times, you know, and but we have noticed also a difference in that. Even his baseball coach was like, hey, he remembered this. He knew we were supposed to be doing this. Like, And so it's been remarkable in the last year to see the gains and strides as we sit in this undiagnosed limbo where you feel isolated and alone. And I'm so thankful for the convention we're at now. But even still, I sit back and see so many people have found their community with their diagnoses. And they have a support group. They have a community. They have that. And we don't necessarily fit in. I have so much gratitude because 
especially here at the convention, there hasn't been a person who has not wanted to be helpful or push me in a direction or introduce me to someone who could possibly provide answers or insight. Or if that person doesn't know, then they say, well, let me get in touch with you to get in touch with this person. And I have so much gratitude for that, as well as, I don't know if disappointment's the right word, but it took me six years to do it, right? And it wasn't, I think, for a lot of moms dealing with rare disease or a sick child of any cancer of anything, you are so focused on being a caregiver and your child's well-being is your absolute priority. And some people may be much better than I was at navigating and networking and finding that support. But I never felt like I had the time, I guess. I was so focused and in survival mode that I was almost had tunnel vision. And I was just a one-track making sure we're staying out of hospitals or if we're in the hospital, how am I going to arrange childcare or, you know, all of those things, doctor's appointments and advocating with insurance companies for treatments and leaving an insurance company to have to change because of things or just there were so many other things. So I'm really grateful to meet people such as yourself along this journey. Now, I think that honestly, the timing is perfect, that maybe my eyes and ears and heart were open enough in the survival mode where I've, since he's seen success and progress in the last year, I've been able to breathe as a mom. And I think that as much as I may have wished I had done this sooner, I think that the timing is perfect. And this is exactly when I needed to be available in this capacity. I, I'm so glad to hear that you're finally coming to that point. And that was going to be my next question. Tell me about you, because you have a mom of three and you have been on this journey and I always wonder, like, how do you maintain yourself in your marriage and the family? And it's a lot. It is. And I would be lying if I said it's been easy. And that would be the biggest lie I've ever told. It's hard. It's extremely hard because even your closest friends sometimes cannot really understand what you're going through. And there's no expectation for them to understand. You don't know what you don't know. And if you're not living it, you can't know. I didn't understand. I had no perception of what it meant to have a sick child until my child was there. And as much as you want to help or as much as you want to be there, sometimes I don't know if we understand how to do that in the right capacity. I was talking with someone this morning about the siblings and my other two children and how maybe my one regret in this is not protecting them enough or not being keen enough to understand what their needs were when I know a big chunk of at least two years was me focused on our son with the disease while he was in and out of hospitals. And I know that family and friends cared for them and took care of them, but I wasn't physically and emotionally available to my other two children. And now that I've been able to take a breather, hindsight, oh, you know, and in your marriage, you both want the best thing for all of your children, but it doesn't mean you agree on what that best thing is all the time. So lots of compromise, lots of talk, lots of learning. I can say that I have grown significantly as a person, and I know my husband has too. And I think both of my other two children, the siblings of my son with undiagnosed disease, have learned a compassionate way of life, seeing their own brother suffer and not necessarily having choices in what happened to our family 
or not being able to go on a family vacation during a school break because we had too many doctor's appointments. Those things were taken away from them too. So it definitely affected all of us. But them learning how to have compassion and understanding, hopefully, will make them see the world from a different perspective and have more compassion as they become adults and maybe even place a role or be a part of a role in what they choose to do in adulthood. We see that a lot in the rare disease community. How important is it for you to get away from that undiagnosed community? And how important is it for Evan? So I almost like to call it a catch-22 because we've been here for six years. This is what we know. And we've learned to grow and survive and thrive, honestly, in that community. So I'm torn. Do we stay here and be complacent with the gains that we have made and the successes we've had? Or do we push forward and find a way? I don't know if technology, I don't know if his disease just hasn't been discovered. I don't know what the other side is, right? Like I look at it as we've traveled this path. (laughs) We've gone astray so many times. There's no direct line path. But I look at it as we're in the center. And at the end is a diagnosis. At the end are answers. And should I be complacent? We're seeing success or Should we move to the next? Because there are so many questions. If we get a diagnosis, is our insurance going to recognize his disease? Are we going to have to fight and advocate and battle again for his treatments? If we get a diagnosis, are we going to receive information that's heartbreaking? I don't know. I don't know the answers to that. I think if you would have asked me that question three, two, even maybe four years ago, I would have had a different answer than I do now. However, I am here purposefully trying to figure out what the next steps are. I shouldn't say I do that with reluctance, but I'm not, I am very aware of what that means, what those next steps might mean for our family or what may happen. So I think we're in the crossroads, honestly. And so Evan is improving and probably just living his life, which he should be. And so that journey is really what you want for him and that the diagnosis will be that crossroad, right, when you decide that. But he's thriving as... He is. And truly, even a year ago, but the strides and the gains that we have seen in just a year have been of such magnitude. It has changed my perspective on so many ways. Because previous to that, it was trying to get through each day managing all the symptoms. and. As soon as we had a really symptomatic or a bad day, you know, you're on call waiting to go to the hospital. And that's how we lived our lives for so long. I will never forget the first day he had a fever. His body wouldn't even register fevers when he was deathly ill because his body just could not fight anything. And when I took him to a walk-in clinic and she tested his temperature and he had a fever, I rejoiced insanely. And that poor doctor looked at me like I was the craziest woman on earth at that moment. I'm like, you don't understand. This is so significant. You know, he has a fever. That means his body is acknowledging sickness and it wants to fight. And I was just like, ah, like it was that everything just happened in that moment. It was the best thing. I was (laughs) rejoicing and screaming with so much happiness. The whole new world was opened up to us. And how you navigate the medical complexities of everything, of just your own symptoms to learning how to talk and be a partner with professionals and trying to make sure that you're a part of your son's team and having a doctor respect your insights and value what you have to say as I was keeping data and medically I was journaling everything. And just to feel like you're a valued 
participant of your own child's journey was a big part too. Thank you so much. And I know Evan and your other two, we're going to be so proud of you. (laughs) So thank you for sharing. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to them for letting you share their story. So thank you so much. No, thank you. I appreciate you acknowledging that. (laughs) Good. Well, thank you. Thank you so much. Finally, we're going to hear from Caroline, whose son Alex is 18 years old. In 2018, Alex was diagnosed with a condition called neurodevelopmental disorder with regression, abnormal movements, loss of speech, and seizures. Alex went undiagnosed for 12 years as his family tirelessly searched for answers. Caroline tells us about that 12-year journey, how Alex is still happy-go-lucky as ever, and how he embodies his favorite motto, never give up. Thank you so much for being part of PTC Therapeutics Insightful Moments, My Bible, and I welcome you. And I would love for you to introduce yourself and tell us about you and your family. Okay. My name is Caroline Chung Yu. I'm a mother of an 18-year-old boy with a very rare condition. It's a mutation of the gene IRF2BPL. The disorder is also known as netimus, which is short for, it's a little bit of a mouthful, but it's neurodevelopmental disorder with regression, abnormal movements, loss of speech, and seizures. And so he was diagnosed in 2018, but he was undiagnosed for 12 years. So let's go back then. Well, it's actually 12 years plus now since your diagnosis, right? Correct. What did the symptoms look like? How did that process look for trying to find that diagnosis? Well, he was born typical. Nothing that alarmed us that there was anything wrong until he was around about two. There were certain milestones he wasn't reaching. A little bit of issues with speech, was walking a little bit oddly, like he had a funny kind of gait walking. And then we took him to specialist and they said, oh, he'll grow out of it. And year after year, he got worse. It progressed. So his walking mainly got more and more clumsy. He was falling more frequently over a period of a couple of years. So by the time he turned six, he couldn't walk anymore. It wasn't sudden. It was very gradual. And then it didn't stop there. They still didn't know what the diagnosis was, even though he's gone through a lot of medical testing. And so the disease progressed from feet up. I always describe it like a juvenile ALS. It started with his walk. He was in a wheelchair. He could wheel himself around and sit up straight, but then he eventually lost trunk control, eventually lost hand control. Eventually, with eating, we went from eating a a whole pizza to cutting up a pizza to dicing and mincing and pureeing a pizza. And eventually had to be on a G-tube fed so he can't take anything by mouth because it would be aspirate and it would be dangerous for him. And seizures started. And then he also, his breathing started to decline where his lung collapsed and he needed non-invasive ventilation. And he's now trach and 24-hour invasive ventilation right now. So he's a full, full care So yeah, it took us 12 years and going to a lot of different institutions, research, DNA sequencing, until he was finally diagnosed in 2018. So when you received that diagnosis after 12 years, can you describe that moment? It was relief because at that point he had been sequenced so many times that 
we kind of lost a little bit of hope. And it was a relief. It was a relief that there's a diagnosis, that there is a reason instead of everybody, you know, the medical professionals saying, oh, he's a mystery. We don't know. We don't know how long he's going to live. We don't know how this is going to progress. We don't know any other people with this type of a presentation. So it was a very lonely and isolating process. And yeah, so he, we got the diagnosis. Actually, I call it miraculous intervention because there's a neurological institute that deals with undiagnosed children with neurological disorders. And they initially didn't diagnose him. But six years later, the physician, the neurologist that saw him was asking for medical records of another patient he was seeing. He unknowingly flipped the medical record number, the last two digits back to front and they pulled up my son's medical record. And at the time, they had just bought some new software, data software, that had brand new research from that year that was published about a new disorder. And they ran his data through this new software, and that was when his diagnosis came up. So I was very surprised the way that it, it happened, and also the fact that we got a diagnosis for him. So it's not a mystery, and that even though there's no cure because it's such a new disorder, it was good to connect with the community I quite quickly was able to find other patients and connected with them. And that was, I was always part of the rare disease community because 12 years you kind of develop friendships with people even though they don't have the same disorder. But it was a relief to know, oh, this is like my little clan of people who have the exact, going through the exact same process. The care that your son requires now, can you give us, you know, because it's obviously a full-time care role. Yes, yes. So... And when I say full care, he cannot move. So he's in a wheelchair or he's in his hospital bed. He cannot move by himself voluntarily. So all of his daily care from brushing his teeth, combing his hair to toileting and all that is cared for. He's on a G-tube. So all of his feeding is, um, you know, we have to mix the formula. We have to give him his meds. And he has many meds every two hours. And he also, because he's on a ventilator, there's a lot of maintenance with him being on a ventilator, certain things to keep things clean. He has breathing treatments every six hours because as his condition progressed, there's just another piece of equipment we need to use. So his care is always changing because it's, uh, I always have called uh, my son Alex a moving target because we learn something new we, and then something else happens and we have to learn new medical terminology, a new piece of medical equipment to use so that we can keep him as comfortable and as healthy as we possibly can. So tell me about Alex. Ah, he is a happy-go-lucky kid. So despite the fact that all of this has happened to him, he doesn't complain. He never complained from the get-go. I remember one time when he was losing his speech, it was harder and harder to understand him. He would be talking slower and more slurred. And there was one time where he was repeating something, and I knew he was repeating the same sentence, but after five times, I told him, I'm sorry, honey, but I don't understand what you're talking about. He just mm, shrugged his shoulders and, you know, moved on to something else. So he never cries. He's just very—he was and still is a happy kid. Of course, having so many medical interventions with him, he's certainly uncomfortable. You know, he's been bedridden since he was six, and now he's 18, so he has severe scoliosis. He's developing contractures of his hand and feet, which hurt, but he he rarely cries, and if he does, it's something that bothers him very much. So for the most part, he smiles. He just graduated from high school just before the summer, 
And we were planning a huge graduation party for him. Basically, friends and teachers that have, over the years, seen his progression and had helped him along the way. And he got to put his cap and gown on. And even though it was difficult, me and the nurses made it happen. And so he had a very good ceremony where he needed minimal medical intervention during the procession. And the school had a nice private ceremony for the special education kids. So he was very much looking forward to that. For weeks, he was just a very, very happy because he was anticipating that this graduation, I'll get to do this, and I'm, I'm now a high school graduate. So, And I can only imagine how proud that must have been that moment for you. Yes, because, of course, when he started to get sick, none of the doctors know, and we still don't know to this day, what the life is, lifespan of this disorder. We already know in, from joining this community group that there have already been two children that have passed away just within the last two years, and maybe even more that weren't diagnosed. So I think I'm proud not only of his accomplishments. For him, they're big, but for other people, it might be, oh, well, you know. But I think the bigger thing is that he's 18. We just didn't know what to expect as far as what his lifespan is. So every day, every year, it's like a celebration, and that I'm always proud (laughs) Yeah. Looking back, you know, you went through that 12 years of not knowing and being in that undiagnosed community. What would you say to a parent who is in the middle of that now and trying to navigate themselves through that community? And this is my son's motto, never give up. That was one of the things that he one day out of the blue when he was still talking came to me and said, you know, never give up. And that's kind of what has been ringing in my head all the time. What keeps me going? So I would definitely say never give up. It is a difficult road. I mean, there's many people that their children are undiagnosed for even longer than 12 years, but I would say never give up. And I would also say reach out to the community and share, like I am sharing now, Alex's story, because you never know who you'll be connected with. And through the 12 years of being undiagnosed, that's how I got the three opportunities to have his DNA sequenced. And and of course, now the diagnosis. We met with certainly families that not only tools to get along to the diagnosis, but I connected with families that have a different diagnosis, but they have similar symptoms. And I reached out to them and they would tell me and teach me, well, this is what I did for my child. And even though it's not the same disorder, it was something that helped me. Education, getting certain benefits, things that I learned because I shared a story with another family or another person, and they shared with me what I could do. And that way I didn't feel as isolated. Stepping out and reaching out to the community, I'm not as alone and I'm not as frustrated because I learned something that I can apply and share with others. I actually, a couple years into this undiagnosed journey, I started a support group because I started to find people that were able to help, resources. And I, I wanted other people, other families like us, not to be alone out there. We're kind of all out alone in our little boats drifting. And I'm like, you know, why recreate the wheel? If I found something useful, I want to share it with other families. So I started a support group here in San Diego, and it's called the Community of Complex, Undiagnosed, Rare, and Extraordinary. And I bring in speakers, people that I come across, like events like this at Global Genes, and they share what their resources are. And I've had many families come through the group and, in fact, met some of them here today. And it feels so good to hear that I've actually helped them either get their diagnosis or bring them closer to 
a diagnosis. Now, is that group in person or is it a virtual group? How do families find it? It's a virtual. We actually initially was an in-person. Of all things, it started in a park near my house because I thought I just want to get all the families together. And then eventually we met in person. However, after COVID, we are now virtual, which actually enables me to do a few more meetings than four. So we have six meetings a year and it's all virtual. So that opens up to not only just the people in the local community here, but of course, everywhere because it's virtual. I want to hear about you. I love your story about Alex and I love that you're supporting the community. What do you do for yourself? Good question. I try to reach out to the community and just connect with other people. I also like to bounce off of what my son likes to do. And he loves music, and I do too. And so what I like to do is play music. I actually taught myself the guitar because Alex responds very well to music therapy. And then we had lost our music therapist for a couple of years. So instead of going out to look for a music therapist, I decided to buy a guitar and, and learn And so that's kind of been therapy both for him and myself. I also write a blog just to keep family and friends in touch. And that's also been a relief as far as sharing with friends and family what is going on, some of the frustrations and some of the achievements, no matter how small they are. And I think that's what has helped me. And then being here, I think it is so hard to be at an event, (laughs) being away from my son, but it is through it being together with the community also just kind of gives me a little bit of energy and I'm always inspired by other people's stories. You had said that a couple of times about how powerful the story is, right? And that everyone's story is so personal and so important and so impactful for so many people. So that's why we do My Vibe. And so we're so grateful that you're sharing it. But what I'm really grateful for too, is that you're letting other people know by talking and sharing their story to anyone and everyone. It makes such a big difference. Yes. And like I said, I'm a huge advocate for both the undiagnosed because we were undiagnosed for so long. And for those that are diagnosed with the rare disorder, because the journey doesn't stop there, right? Once you have your diagnosis, there's so many other things, but there is a focus. I think it's so much harder for those that are undiagnosed. In fact, my son was one of four patients that has been followed on a documentary This documentary is called Undiagnosed. And after following us for nine years, they finally finished the movie. So a year ago, they released it. It actually was released at the Boston Film Festival. And to date, they've actually won nine awards. The latest award was at the San Diego Film Festival, where um, myself and another parent went to receive the award on the filmmaker's behalf. It is not streaming yet. yet. It is going through the independent film circuit okay. right now. And hopefully eventually in the next year or two, it will be streaming. But right now it's going through the independent film circuit. So they followed you for that long? Yes. What was that process like that they took with you? They like, would come to appointments with you? How did that happen? Yes, uh, happen? they came to our house, interviewed us. They came to appointments with us. They even attended my son's first Holy Communion. (laughs) When my son was really sick in the hospital, the filmmakers actually came out to actually help with my other child. And they also did some filming at the children's hospital. They went to school. They've actually been part of, I think when I first got the diagnosis, that was one of the few people that I called to tell them 
And yeah. They sound like they're probably members of the family or honorary members of your family following you for so long. Yes. That is so wonderful. So tell the name of the documentary again. And it's called Undiagnosed. And there is a website with a movie trailer. So you can at least see a movie trailer and it's undiagnosedfilm.com. Well, that's awesome. Talk about sharing a story and a journey. Right. So you mentioned you had another child. We often find that siblings are really unsung heroes, right? Tell us about your other child and, and their relationship with Alex. This is older sister. She's two years older and her name's Elaine. And she's always been helpful with Alex. She's very tech oriented. So she actually has been my second hand in taking care of Alex. The hard thing is because he takes up so much time that there's really minimal time for her. And I think that's a lot of parents with an undiagnosed or rare disease child. I think that's the challenge. One of the harder challenges is to be able to spend more time, quality time with the unaffected child. Yes. And it actually makes me feel really, really guilty a lot of the time. So we try to You know, we got her involved in SIP Shop, which is a group that helps siblings of children with disabilities. And um, I try to get involved in all of the things that she did at school with her music and recitals. And we try our best to kind of do all that and spend as much time as we can with her. But yeah, there's always never enough time. But I'm sure that, you know, who she is today is because of her brother and all of you in I think our siblings have inspired their brother or sister, right? Definitely. That's wonderful. Is there anything that I didn't ask that you would like to share? I don't think so. Again, I think it's so important to be, even though being undiagnosed or rare, I think more so for undiagnosed, being in an isolated situation is to be able to, you know, when the door opens, to not only look through the door, but actually walk out. And I think once you connect with, community and individuals, you learn so much from them and and each other. And I think that in itself makes you feel less lonely, that you're part of a bigger community. And I think that's just so important. You were asking me earlier about what I would say to other parents, and I would say never give up and always be flexible and meet people out in the community because there's always opportunities to help each other. And I also love that you're giving yourself some time too for being here. And I think that's all equally important too, right, is to make sure that you have that time for yourself and makes, you know, your cup full when you go back to Alex. Well, I can't thank you enough for coming and thank sharing this. Thank you for this. having me and giving me the opportunity to share his story. And I can't wait to watch the documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much. That's so wonderful. We wish nothing but the best for Alex and hoping that, you know, research catches up with him and finding different things that will help him. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, everyone, for listening to this episode of Insightful Moments, My Vibe, and for supporting voices within the rare disease community. Thank you as well to everyone who shared their story on today's episode. Please visit our website at www.ptcinsightfulmoments.com for more stories and resources. If any of the stories resonated with you today, please let us know by leaving a review wherever you are listening or by sharing this show with a friend. I'm Emily Heinz, and this has been Insightful Moments My Vibe from PTC Therapeutics.